Welcome to the Bob Harden Show, bringing you news and commentary to keep you informed and enjoying life on the Paradise Coast. And now, here's your host, Bob Harden. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning. Johnson's Air Conditioning is Naples' longest established air conditioning company. You can find out more and give them a call. The website is johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. We have a terrific show for today, including uh, guest Mark Schulman, founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com, talking about current global events, and there's lots to talk about. We'll also visit with Larry Reed, President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education, talk about a, a Revolutionary War hero, Dr. Joseph Warren. And we'll visit with Doug Lewis. He's a, a local political activist and uh, very active in the school Public schools here in Collier County will be talking about the school board elections and more. It is July the 11th, and on this day in 1804, in one of the most famous duels in American history, Vice President Aaron Burr fatally shot his longtime political antagonist, Alexander Hamilton. Hamilton was a leader in the federal, a chief architect of America's political economy. He died the following day. Alexander Hamilton was born on a Caribbean island of Nevis, he came to the United States, or to the colonies, I should say, in 1773 as a poor immigrant. There's some controversy about when he was uh, when he was born, but uh, and sometime between 1755 and 1757. In 1776, he joined the Continental Army in the American Revolution, and his relentless energy and remarkable intelligence brought him to the attention of General George Washington, who took him on as an aide. Ten years later, Hamilton served as a delegate to the Constitutional Convention, and he led the fight to win ratification of the final document, which created the kind of strong, centralized government that he favored. In 1789, he was appointed the first Secretary of the Treasury by President Washington, and during the next six years, he crafted a sophisticated monetary policy that saved the young U.S. government from total collapse with the emergence of uh, political parties, Hamilton was regarded as the leader of the Federalists. Aaron Burr, born in a prestigious New Jersey family in 1756, was also intellectually gifted, and he graduated from the College of New Jersey, which is now Princeton. At the age of 17, he joined the Continental Army in 1775 and distinguished himself during the Patriot attack on Quebec. A masterful politician, he was elected to the New York State Assembly in 1784 and later served as the uh, state attorney general in 1790. He defeated Alexander Hamilton's father-in-law in a race for the U.S. Senate. Hamilton came to detest Burr, who regarded as a dangerous opportunist, and he often spoke ill of him. When Burr joined uh, Thomas Jefferson's Democrat-Republican ticket, the forerunner of the Democrat Party, as vice president in 1796 election, Hamblin launched a series of public attacks against Burr, stating, I feel it is a religious duty to oppose his career. John Adams won the presidency, and in 1797, Burr left the Senate and returned to the New York Assembly. In 1800 election, uh, Jefferson and Burr became running mates again. Burr aided the Democrat-Republican ticket by publishing a confidential document that Hamilton had written criticizing his fellow Federalist President John Adams. This caused a rift in the Federalists and helped Jefferson and Burr win the election with 73 electoral votes each. Under the electoral pr uh, procedure, this prevailing president and vice president were not voted for separately. The candidate who received the most votes was elected president, the second in line, vice president. The vote then went to the House of Representatives. What at first seemed like an electoral a technicality handed Jefferson victory over his running mate, developed into a major constitutional crisis when Federalists in the lame duck Congress drew their support through their support behind Burr. After remarkable 35 tie votes, 35 a small group of Federalists changed sides and voted in Jefferson's favor. Alexander Hamilton, who had been supporting Jefferson as the lesser of two evils, was instrumental in breaking the deadlock. Burr became vice president, but Jefferson grew apart from him, and he did not support Burr's renomination into the second term in 1804. That year, a faction of New York Federalists, who had found their fortunes drastically after the ascendance of Jefferson, sought to enlist the disgruntled Burr, in their party and election, elect him as governor. Hamilton campaigned against Burr with great fervor, 
and Burr lost the Federalist nomination and then, running as an independent for governor, the election. In the campaign, Burr's character was savagely attacked by Hamilton and others, and after the election, he resolved to restore his reputation by challenging Hamilton to a duel or an affair of honor, as they were known. Affairs of honor were commonplace in America at the time, and the complex rules governing them usually led to an honorable solution before the actual firing of weapons. In fact, the outspoken Hamilton had been involved in several affairs of honor in his life and had been resolved, most of them peaceably. No other recourse was found with Burr, however, and on July the 11th, 1804, the enemies met at 7 a.m. at a dueling ground near Waukegan, New Jersey. It was the same spot where Hamilton's son had died defending his father's honor in 1801. There are conflicting accounts of what happened next. According to Hamilton's second, his assistant witness at the duel, Hamilton decided to duel, the duel was morally wrong and deliberately fired into the air. Burr's second claimed that the... Uh, and second being the guy that was with Burr, said that uh, Hamilton fired at Burr and missed. What happened next is agreed upon. Burr shot Hamilton in the stomach and the bullet lodged into his spine. Hamilton was taken back to New York and he died the next afternoon. Few affairs of honor actually resulted in deaths and uh, the nation was outraged by the killing of a man as eminent as Alexander Hamilton. Charged with murder, Burr, still vice president, returned to Washington where he finished his term immune from prosecution. In 1805, Burr, thoroughly discredited, concocted a plot with James Wilkinson, uh, commander of the U.S. Army, to seize the Louisiana Territory and establish an independent empire, which Burr presumably would lead. He contacted British government and unsuccessfully pleaded for an assistance in the scheme. Later, when border trouble with Spanish Mexico heated up, Burr and Wilkinson conspired to seize territory in the Spanish America for the same purpose. In the fall of 1806, Burr led a group of well-armed colonists towards New Orleans, prompting an immediate U.S. investigation. General Wilkinson, in an effort to save himself, turned against Burr and sent dispatches to Washington accusing Burr of treason. In February 1807, Burr was arrested in Louisiana for treason and sent to Virginia to be tried uh, in the U.S. court. In September, he was acquitted on a technicality. Nevertheless, public opinion condemned him as a traitor, and he fled to Europe. He later returned to private life in New York. The murder charges against him forgotten. He died in 1836. What a story. We talk about the rankest nature of politics today, but just think about how serious they were having an affair of honor uh, over politics. That really happened. Well, what are the safest cities in the United States of America? In fact, 11 of the top 25 are in Florida. Eight of them made the top 10. Uh, to create a breakdown, U.S. News & World Report used FBI data on murder and property crime rates per 100,000 residents. It's hardly a comprehensive list because there's other stuff that goes on that can be considered harmful, but it's a good start. But if you're mainly looking to slash your chances of being a victim of homicide or burglary, Florida's where it's at. Retirees certainly seem to find it a suitable area. The prevalence of gold majors in the cities, all 11 of them make the U.S. News & a list of best places to retire in Florida suggests there's a correlation with the respect of low crime rates. In any event, uh, when you take a look at the top 10, now this is according to the U.S. News and World Report, the safest cities in the United States. Number one, Naples, Florida. How about that? Second is Port, uh, Port St. Lucie in Florida, and uh, of course Fort Myers came in third. Portland, Maine was the first in the Northeast. Uh, also uh, came in uh, uh, fourth. Tampa and Sarasota were up there like sixth and seventh. So surprised me to see Worcester, Massachusetts on the list of the top 10. So interesting. Well, in uh, a Save America rally promising to be a memorable one, former President Donald Trump stumped for a pair of, of America First candidates in Anchorage, Alaska, and blasted President Joe Biden's work to unravel American prosperity as quick as any president in U.S. history. Uh, <clears throat> we were led by fools, Trump told the uh, Alaska Airlines Center crowd in Anchorage, Alaska, on Saturday night at the rally, which aired live on Newsmax. We watched it, in fact. Trump lamented the quick damage Biden and Democrats have done to America in less than two years. Biden and the radical left have turned calm into chaos, competence into incompetence, stability into anarchy, prosperity into poverty, 
and security into catastrophe, he said. The radical Democrats have turned our country into one giant sanctuary for dangerous criminal aliens, he said. In the Republican Party, we believe our country should be a sanctuary for law-abiding citizens who love America like we did and like we do. As we restore the rule of laws in our borders, we must also restore an order in our streets. All Democrat-run, you know that. It's all uh, the thing they have in common. All Democrat-run under Joe Biden. Trump was stumping for America's first candidate, Kelly Shibaka, for Alaska governor uh, to replace Lisa Murkowski, and also uh, stumping for Sarah Palin, who's vacated the seat, uh, was vacated the seat of uh, Don Young, who's a Republican in Alaska. Trump called for impeachment votes, gun voting, uh, abortion supporting Senator Murkowski, a rhino, adding she's worse than the Democrats and a total creature of the Washington swamp. But you're going to elect a wonderful woman, a conservative warrior, Kelly Shibaka, he said. Trump denounced the Democrats' soft on crime policies and border, open border under Biden. It's so stupid what we're doing in our country. It's so stupid, Trump continued. If you want to make our country safer for violent criminals, vote for the radical, dizzy Democrats. If you want to make it safe for your family, your children, and law-abiding Americans, you must vote Republican and do it quickly, he said. And get Murkowski out because she's not a Republican, he claimed. Trump turned his attention to the damage of the Biden administration on inflation and economic destruction. Under Biden, there's still some... Four million people who have not returned to the labor force, he said. Real wages are just absolutely collapsing, especially when you add in inflation. Nobody's ever seen anything like it, he said. He's, I think he's right about that. Well, finally, on a local note, community members in uh, packed a Sanibel Public Library on commissioners of commissioners uh, meeting after parents found controversial transgender uh, picture books in the children's section of the library. Florida's Voice previously reported on the parents upset to find children's books about gender transitioning in accessible locations for kids. The books displayed young children choosing whether they wanted to be a boy or a girl. Can you believe that? Well, parents were outraged about this. They asked some of the commissioners, what are your thoughts about all this? And they said, well, look, the library is separate. We're not going to comment on that. Apparently, public library is an independent organization in Sanibel. So... Uh, I think this is, it's just uh, shocking to me that this would be happening in Sanibel, of all places. We've got to really investigate and make sure that this is not happening in public schools uh, through Florida. Because guess what? It's against the law. This segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. I hope you'll visit johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples the website is lifeinnaples.net. Coming up, Mark Schulman, founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. That and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. I'm Bob Harden, the host of The Bob Harden Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is Lulabee's Diner, providing great service, fabulous food, and a rockin' good time. Lulabee's Diner is a throwback to the 60s, complete with great music and a fabulous 60s decor. What I like best is a blend of great food, great value, and terrific service. Most of the friendly waitstaff has been part of Lulabee's for years. I enjoy the great choices for breakfast and lunch, and you'll find the menu has everything and anything to satisfy your taste. Lulabee's offers catering, party platters, lunch boxes, and more. Lulabee's Diner will quickly become one of your favorites for breakfast or lunch. No reservations are needed. Check out the website at lulabees.com and stop by Lulabee's Diner, open from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m., seven days a week. Lulabee's Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center at the corner of Immokalee and Airport Pulling Roads. Stop by Lulabee's Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool rockin' good time. Mm -hmm. 
Collier County Sheriff Kevin Rambaugh says the number one reason the elderly become victims is isolation. The Collier Senior Center goes a long way in keeping seniors connected with the community and with each other. The Collier Senior Center, located at 4898 Coronado Parkway in Golden Gate, provides comprehensive information regarding services and resources that affect the quality of life of older adults and their caregivers in Collier County, empowering them to maintain independent and meaningful lives. Here's Esther Lully, director of Collier Senior Center. Everyone, every senior is welcome. There's diversity there. It's vibrant. It's a caring atmosphere. So there's a reason we offer the services and programs that we do. We want to help enrich the lives of senior members and provide support to their caregivers. Want to find out more? Visit CollierSeniorCenter.org. That's CollierSeniorCenter.org. Or call the Collier Senior Center at 239-252-4541. That's 252 252- 4541. Welcome back to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Golf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York style theater at its very best. And you can get tickets now and find out more. The website is golfshoreplayhouse.org. Coming up, we're going to visit with Larry Reed, Pre- uh, President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. Right now we have with us Mark Schulman. Mark is the founder and publisher of a terrific multimedia website. It's called HistoryCentral.com. Great for kids of all ages, including you and I. I hope you check it out, HistoryCentral.com. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure, Bob. Thank you, Mark. So uh, let's start off with uh, Biden's trip to the Middle East. I guess on Wednesday he's off to visit the Middle East, and uh, uh, it, it's kind of confusing what's going over there on over there. Lots of issues. Maybe you can tell us about it. Right. So he's coming on Wednesday. Um, the first thing he's doing is actually going to an Israeli Air Force base to see a demonstration of um, Israel's new laser defense system. And I gather the Israelis are going to pitch the idea of making it a joint project in some form or another. Um, he's spending Thursday meeting government officials, and Friday morning it looks like he's going to uh, meet with the Palestinian Authority, and then he's off to Saudi Arabia from there. Uh, the major expectation from this trip is actually some sort of deal with the Saudis, you know, that the joint deal between Israel and the Saudi Arabians and possibly some of the Gulf states. Uh, There's already an underlying agreement between them in terms of defense, and the idea is to make it a little more public. Uh, The Gulf states, of course, have now have public public, um, relations, uh, I say public relations, not PR, but uh, have diplomatic relations with Israel. Mm -hmm. Saudi Arabia does not. One of the big things that Israel is looking for is overflight rights, so that its planes don't have to go all the way around when it goes to the the Far East, etc., and it looks like um, additional agreements between the countries. Uh, it was announced that, two, that Israel sold $2 billion in arms in the last year to, to the Gulf states. So that's where the major agreements look like they're going to be. And the whole issue, of course, is countering Iran, because it does not look like there's going to be an agreement um, there's with, between Iran in terms of the JCOPA and Iran's going forward with their nuclear program um, with nothing to stop them, basically. So did I read correctly that the uh, United States government is making a, uh, some sort of a do- donation or contribution to the Palestinian uh, organization? And uh, what they... no, To a hospital. Um, that's what it looks like. It's going to give money to a, to a hospital in East Jerusalem. It's, n- that's, it's not official, so we can't say that, but that's the scoop, supposedly, that, that they're going to give money to a hospital. Not, no, it's not to the Palestinian Authority, but to... To some to a hospital in East Jerusalem. Okay, thanks for clarifying. Now the other issue is the Abraham Accords. Where does Biden and his administration stand with the Abraham Accords? They're fully behind it at this point. That's what this is. This is a follow-up of the Abraham Accords, trying to deepen those accords and to try to bring Saudi Arabia into it. For Biden, it's a bit awkward because the whole issue, of course, MBS is the Saudi Crown Prince is responsible for the killing of Khashoggi, the Washington Post uh, uh, contributing uh, columnist who was killed by the Saudis. And, of course, uh, on the campaign, Biden called them effectively killers. Now he's about to go meet with them. But, again, that's part of the strategic question of getting the Saudis to pump more oil, uh, to balance the fact that people, you know, as much as as possible are now trying to 
to get away from um, Russian oil, and the big country that has the ability to make up the difference is, of course, Saudi Arabia. Well, with regard to Khashoggi, so, I guess it's uh, let's let uh, bygones be bygones and move on. More or less. I mean, the re- real politic has come in, and you know, all, all over history, historic t- attempts to base. Uh, to base foreign policy on morality has never really quite worked. Never, to be honest. Yeah, it, it's always good to have a. It's always good to it be part of it. In other words, you can't ignore morality, obviously. But, but on the other hand, unfortunately, it can't be the only thing because uh, nations' real interests are are at play at any given point. So, I mean, my general view is, you go ahead with relations despite the fact that some of these regimes are problematic to say the least, but you do whatever you can along the way to try to influence those regimes. That's, so interesting. That's, that's the best I can balance it, let's put it that way. Okay, so uh, how would you summarize the strategic objectives of Biden on this trip? The strategic objectives are twofold. One is to strengthen uh, the defense agreements between Israel and the Gulf states, and in, include Saudi Arabia in that, and that creates a defensive alliance uh, to balance out against the Iranians as much as possible, um, and two, to try to get the Saudis to basically pump more oil. Those, those are the two big goals yeah. of this trip. And then I would assume that his visit also to Israel is domestic political. You know, on one hand, to his left-wing base, saying, he, I, here, I'm doing something about Palestinians, and to the general Democratic uh, and, and others, here, I'm in Israel, and I'm a strong supporter of Israel, which is always, you know, any election year is a good, good, good thing to do from a political standpoint. Absolutely, but it does raise the question about who's he going to visit with, because right now the government is in total uh, chaos in, in uh, Israel. Well, it's not. To- I mean, there's, there's an interim prime minister who he's meeting with, and will meet with the president, uh-huh. and he will meet the opposition leader, of course, is running to try to get back his job, which is Bibi Netanyahu. So he'll meet with all the players. Uh-huh. Uh, look, no one expects any tremendous advances in diplomacy during this period of time. Um, in terms of you know Israel domestic, Israel Palestinian, all that. No one expects any of that right now. Understand. Uh, but um, you know, everyone will go through. All, everyone will say nice things as diplomats know how to say. Exactly. So. Well, Mark, you know it's so interesting. The the velocity of news right now is. It seems like Johnson uh, resigned. Boris Johnson re, uh, resigned a week or two two weeks ago, but it just happened last Friday. What are your thoughts on this? Uh, his UK prime minister well, resigning. Well, two things. First of all, I mean, yes, um, you know what happened with Johnson. They kept on looking like there were problems, and then there was the final, the final what people call the straw that broke the camel's back. In this case, it was some lying about one of his aides, and also a meeting that he had. It seems with a Soviet agent at some point. Um, look, um, the British uh, take honesty seriously. What can I tell you? Um, you know, in the United States, a lot there'll be very few presidents still standing. Maybe since I don't know when, but uh, no, n- no one has been quite like George Washington. I will never tell a lie. Let's put it that way. Yeah, it's kind of interesting that apparently in the UK, hypocrisy and lying is just not acceptable among politicians. It'll bring them down. Unlike here in the United States, it seems to be well, uh, you know, he, the, he lied, but it doesn't make a big difference. So. Uh, Right, but look, I, look. There was, of course, lies in their lies. In other words, campaign promises are just no one expects that politicians will keep their campaign promises. That's not really considered a lie. But when a president or a prime minister lies about personal matters, in other words, I don't think it's so much. In other words, if Johnson had lied in the sense of saying, you know, a, a, or made a mistake in terms of, you know, the Soviet, the Russians are never going to invade Ukraine, or you know, anything of that nature, I don't think the, the British are. You know, more accepting of those sort of things, but it was lies on a personal basis, lies on his own personal behavior, um, and um, it's not accepted. So I'm going to tell you. I mean, what's accepted in the United States? Yeah. First of all, let's step back. It was never accepted until uh, I don't know, uh, 60s, 70s, 80s. I don't know at what point we can start saying that the lies were. Oh, maybe maybe Tammany Hall, maybe 1860 or 70. Well, that's that's local politicians, but I can't think of a president. Uh, I can't think of, you know, on a personal, I'm not talking about political things, but I can't think of Hoover or FDR or Eisenhower no. uh, lying about uh, about personal matters. Maybe starting with Kennedy, Johnson, Nixon, of course, obviously. Um, and then, of course, it gained a little extra 
extra with some of our more recent presidents in terms of lying. Well, I must you say, know, though, it's... Had, I, it's Clinton, it's, of course, obviously, um, Trump, yeah. and a lot of, on personal basis, a lot, people started lying that I couldn't, can't imagine earlier presidents doing, you know? I mean, yeah. today's John Quincy Adams' birthday. I can't imagine John Quincy Adams lying about personal matters. That would be an affront to him, to say the least. Exactly. So I would say this is a characteristic I admire about UK politics as opposed to what was happening here. So uh, let's move to uh, uh, Abi, the... Uh, Fascination, yeah. indeed. I mean, for Japan, it was a very sad day, a very disruptive situation. I mean, there are very, there's very little violence in, in Japanese society and certainly almost no gun violence because they have the strictest gun laws I won't say in the world because I, you know, I don't know about every single country, but one of the strictest gun laws in in the world at this point. Right. And of course, the fact that is the, the gun this guy used was home a homemade gun, so it wasn't even, you know, um, uh, very unusual. Uh, we still don't really know what was behind it, but Abe was a transformational leader who transformed his party and transformed the government. Um, and look, we see that um, in the elections that were held after his death. His party maintained control, and so his legacy remains. His idea was to, was to bring back Japanese power, to um, be proud about being Japanese again. Uh, there are issues in in Abe's in Abe's um, view of things. In other words, I don't think he would would have ever apologized for what the Japanese did to the Chinese in uh, in Nanking or those sort of things. But, yeah. Um, but he was he rebuilt the, the Japanese. Um, army to some extent, and also economically was successful in turning around what was turning into a, how do we put it in terms of Japan, um, they were sort of going down a, do uh, a dead end, and they seem to have uh, come out of that. Seems that they, so, did I read correctly that the uh, assassin uh, had somebody else in mind but chose Abe as a second choice to, to uh, fire at? It seems so, but again, this is like you know we we just don't know. If the Japanese are also very tight-lipped. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, there aren't that many leaks like we have in America. Let's put it that way. Right. It's so interesting. So, uh, great yeah. leader, and uh, certainly uh, it's it's a real loss, I think, to uh, the public discourse. Quite frankly, that uh, uh, that that he's lost. I, as I as I remember, he actually resigned because of health issues. Right. Twice, actually. He resigned first. He was he in two thousand, I think eight and nine. He was prime minister and resigned. And then he resigned again now because of health issues. Yeah. He's he's had since childhood um, a problem with his lungs. I think it is, and he's he's uh, it's a challenge. But look what he's accomplished despite the challenge. Absolutely. So. Yeah. What great contributions. How about a Ukraine update? What's happening? So right now the the Russians seem to have paused. Um, it's not at all clear where we're going with it. Supposedly, Zelensky has ordered his army now to retake southern Ukraine from the Russians. Um, the Ukrainians are almost in a position to do that. In other words, they're getting a significant amount of arms now daily from the United States and from all the NATO allies. Um, and they're getting more new arms than the Russians are. The Russians have run out of most of precision uh, armaments, etc. So, Will the Ukrainians be successful in their counteroffensive? We'll have to see. Um, but um, look, the Russians made some progress over the last two months. But think about it a different way: the whole Russian army managed over a two-month period to capture two two medium-sized towns. That's what they did. Mm -hmm. And um, so that's not exactly a humongous accomplishment for what was considered the second biggest army in the world. Um, so. The Ukrainians have put up a really strong fight. It's costing them a tremendous amount. But the question will become, you know, will the West... Um, the, what Putin is counting on is the West will get tired yeah. and give up supporting Ukraine. So my question and, is, but, is uh, it appears that uh, right now that Russia is not achieving its objectives on the battlefield, but is it achieving its objectives with regard to uh, world policy and power and, uh, you know, his, uh, the economy and so forth? I don't think so. I mean, from terms of world policy, I mean, you know, uh, the fact that Sweden and Finland have now joined NATO, or pretty close to have joined NATO at this point, mm -hmm. is certainly a geopolitical setback for the Russians. 
I don't think they gained any new friends by doing what they've done. I mean, more countries are afraid of them, but what's happening is, yes, more countries are afraid of them and are taking action. I mean, just today, I think it's Lithuania or Latvia, I forgot which one of them, just imposed a draft, which it's never had. Mm. Uh, the realization is that Russia is their true enemy. So I don't think they're winning in, uh, in that sense. Economically, they've done okay in terms of the money they've made on oil because the prices have gone up. However, the prices of oil are now coming down. Yeah. So that's one of the big questions. You know, they went up and on speculation, on not enough, but now that now the time has passed. You know, oil markets managed to right themselves, and the price of oil is going down. And I think we're seeing the price of gasoline is going down. All those things are now turning the other way. So if the price of oil keeps on going down, the Russians will be hurting more. Um, so we'll we'll have to see. I mean, it's really a question: Will the West be West willing to to sacrifice to ensure the fact that Ukraine remains independent? Mm. I think the answer is yes, but we never know. Never know. Uh, we... yeah, the the uh, the other question I have is uh, Sri Lanka. Now the uh, prime minister or the president, I've forgotten which, is uh, has resigned. Said the uh, Shri... both actually are resigning at this point. Yeah. So it says that the the country is bankrupt. I think that was his claim. He's leaving, left on an airplane with a couple of suitcases. One wonders what was in the suitcase. <laughs> what are your thoughts? Well, look, we have one of the things that the Ukraine war is doing is it's creating um, economic uncertainty in lots of parts of the world because of the increase in food prices. Uh -huh. And um, I, I, I'm far from an expert on Sri, Sri Lanka domestic policies, but. Um, most of this was caused by you know, the cost of food going up and rioting, people not being happy about that. I mean, this is a concern all over the world. Yeah. You know, it's it's one it's one thing. You know, we complain about gas prices going up, etc. But when food prices, which which already amongst the poor people in the country, are are hard to to feed yourself because of the price, go up. That's what really causes riots. That's what causes change of regimes. You know. That's when I, I, I thought about this, and when, after I read the reports, it made me wonder if this isn't the canary in the coal mine with regard to what's happening around the globe. No, I think very much we should be concerned about that, that this is, this is really a great concern, and the problem with the Russians have caused by blockading uh, Ukrainian grains is causing a, you know, a food shortage all over the world, and uh, we need to be concerned about that. You know, there have been various suggestions that the U.S. or NATO uh, break the blockade, a risky move, let's put it that way. And when you're speaking of the break um, the blockade, what are you referring to? Well, basically, convoy ships out of the Ukrainian ports with grain. Ah. That's what that's what breaking the blockade would be. And say, Russians, you're going to you're going to attack U.S. Navy ships. Is that what you're looking to do? Mm. That's the risk. You know, I mean, it's a, it's a risky move. Yeah, so interesting. So any other thoughts about what the, what's happening in the global economy? and, and, and happening? Yeah, I think one thing we should talk about, what I didn't talk about, is China, which I've been seeing reports today of a run on the Chinese banks. Hmm. And there's a concern there that the, the banks may not, be, um, may not be stable. And from what I understood, there's a run on all four of the major banks in China this morning. Wow. And now, is this a run, does a run look like people standing in line trying to get their money out? Basically, or it runs people going to their their the um, ATM machines and trying to pull money out on their ATM and not succeeding. Mm -hmm. um, that's what I understand has been going on to all four of the major banks this morning. Now, the Chinese government obviously can step in and has reserves, but um, it reflects a real deep problem in the Chinese economy right now, and it's caused by you know multiple factors at the same time. One factor being we've discussed before the overbuilding and the real estate, the loans and everything else that relate to real estate and housing that was never purchased. Uh, that tied together with all of the problems that COVID created in terms of supply chain, which meant the companies weren't producing, which meant that uh, one company, you know, w keep in mind that when you man manufacture something, you're dependent on many different sources, and suddenly some of your sources are not providing with material. That means you can't provide the material, and that has a big impact. Right all the way down the supply chain. And, you know, in the United States, we feel it in the sense that, well, certain goods aren't on the, you know, on the, aren't on the shelves in Walmart or Target or wherever it might be. But in China, if you're thinking about factories and factories suddenly can't get their materials that they needed to, to make whatever goods they're making, you start having factories 
going into trouble and some of them going bankrupt. Right. Because they can't produce. And these things often have chain reactions. So it's something we need to be concerned about, to keep our eyes on. Um, I think on the other side of the coin, of course, is you know the fact that China is always going to advance, etc., another fallacy. Yeah, the like uh, the, Japanese. the other factor, of course, is the uh, their reaction to the uh, coronavirus, to what's uh, locking people down and so forth. Where does that stand right now? Well, it, it varies, but it it's been a real problem. I mean, a problem in the sense that uh, they've had big lockdowns, they've kept people in their homes, very much similar to what was in the United States in the, during the first wave, although in China it wasn't, you know, it, in America it was more or less voluntary. In China it's been, you know, you do, you do it, period. Right. Um, and that's created a great deal of disruption. Again, their, their problems are multifold because they never really had a major wave except in the very, very beginning. There's no, it, there's no immunity whatsoever amongst the population, and they haven't vaccinated the older people, so there's a concern there that uh, mortality could be very high. Yeah. So, and this is new BA5 variant, which seems to be affecting more people these days. Yeah. Uh, this, this corona thing does not want to go away. It may not be killing as many people, but it's still creating havoc all over the world in different levels in different places. Yeah, I read a column about the symptoms of the new variant, and it seems like it pretty much like the flu, but... Uh... Well, we'll just stay it's tuned. Like the flu, in, in, in many ways, the only two differences between this and the flu, uh, we need to keep that in mind, is it's much, much, much more contagious. Yeah. In other words, in the flu, you get the flu, it doesn't necessarily, everyone in your family doesn't get it. Everyone you you ran into in the last two days is not going to get the flu. Yeah. Uh, and two, in certain percentage of the cases, it, it's much, it's much uh, I won't say more deadly, but in some cases deadly, but it's it's worse than the flu in some cases. It depends on the individual, obviously. But the biggest thing again is it's so contagious. Yeah. So you know we don't we don't see a situation when the flu comes. We have a flu period. First of all, the flu is almost always in the winter in the United States. Right. This seems to be doesn't seem to make a, a big difference in that sense. And B, you know, maybe five percent of the people get the flu in any given year. Here you have forty, fifty percent of a community can get get this in a in a short period of time. So stay tuned. Mark Schulman again, founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. I hope you check out the website, HistoryCentral.com. Mark, always appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Have a great week. You as well. Thank you. All right, coming up, Larry Reed. He is the president emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. That and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harton Show here on the Bob Harton Broadcasting Network. Do you suffer with chronic pain and discomfort? After back surgery, I had painful tendons and muscles and difficulty standing upright. On a referral, I visited Dr. Alec at I Am Designed to Heal, Naples' only vitality and longevity practice where acupuncture, Medical massage, energy healing, and integrative holistic medicine are harmonized to create a one-of-a-kind restorative experience. After only two visits, my pain began to dissipate and I could stand and walk more upright. It was amazing. I plan to continue my treatments to enhance my sense of well-being. Don't suffer needlessly with discomfort and pain. Improve your quality of life. See for yourself and make an appointment by visiting the website IamDesignedToHeal.com. That's IamDesignedToHeal.com, or you can call or text Dr. Alec at 239-322-3817. That's 322-3817. Visit IamDesignedToHeal.com for an amazing, one-of-a-kind, restorative experience. Do you have questions about your retirement? Ameriprise Private Wealth Advisor Jason Nardella with Nardella Financial Group, a private wealth advisory practice of Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, can help. With the exclusive Confident Retirement Approach, you'll work together to develop a retirement roadmap to get you where you want to go. Call Nardella Financial Group today at 239-325-1041. That's 239-325-1041. 
Office is located at 9015 Stratistel Court, Suite 103, Naples, Florida. The confident retirement approach is not a guarantee of future financial results. Investment advisory products and services are made available through Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, a registered investment advisor. Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Choice Social. Choice Social is a new refreshing social networking platform, and you can find out more and download the app by visiting the website choicesocial.us. Coming up, we're going to visit with Doug Lewis, local political activist and uh, attorney here in the uh, Paradise Coast. Right now we have with us Larry Reed. He is the President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. Larry, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, Bob. Tell us about the Foundation for Economic Education. Okay. We're an educational organization headquartered in Atlanta, Georgia, and our focus is on high school and college students. We endeavor to educate and inspire them in ideas of individual liberty, free markets, private property, and personal character. The ideas that we think contributed greatly to the success of this country. And uh, uh, we do that through the website, which is fee.org, where you'll find regular daily fresh content, commentary, and uh, news items, and also free videos and courses and uh, news about upcoming fee-sponsored events. If uh, one of our listeners, uh, if you have somebody in your life who is in high school or college age, definitely introduce them to this website, to this organization. They do uh, fantastic work. So, Larry, uh, on fee, fee.org, uh, you wrote a column. This is really interesting to me. Dr. Joseph Warren, the founding father who fought for liberty at Bunker Hill and paid with his life. Maybe you can tell us about it. Okay. Dr. Joseph Warren, uh, Bob, was a remarkable man, uh, unfortunately a bit forgotten in our history, but in recent years, because of uh, at least one new biography, uh, he's getting a bit more attention. Uh, President Reagan cited him in his January 1981 inaugural address. Maybe that helped to get uh, Dr. Warren a bit more attention, too. Uh, in any event, uh, Dr. Warren was born in 1741 in Roxbury, Massachusetts. And to give you a sense of just how bright this young man was, he entered Harvard at the age of 14, believe it or not, yeah. uh, to study medicine and became uh, rather early in his life a, a renowned physician. He was probably on his way uh, to becoming perhaps the best and best known physician in all the colonies uh, before he got involved in the uh, run-up to the War for Independence. Yeah, as I recall, he actually, uh, during the uh, Revolutionary War, there's an outbreak of uh, the, uh, it was a smallpox, I've forgotten exactly what it was, but anyhow, a, a very deadly disease, and uh, he apparently uh, helped soldiers on on the field to actually uh, get well from this. And I'm, I'm, uh, go ahead. Uh, yes, he did uh, a little bit of that, but the, uh, the reason that it's not extensive is that he was killed at the Battle of Bunker Hill rather early in the war. That was June of 1775. His involvement uh, in the independence cause really started in a big way in 1770, mm. five, five years before Bunker Hill. Uh, that's when, um, in March of that year, the so-called Boston Massacre occurred. It was provoked by colonists, but uh, nine British soldiers were confronted by some unruly colonists who uh, pelted them with rocks and epithets. It led to uh, a shooting, and uh, five of the uh, uh, colonials were killed. Dr. Warren was on the scene very quickly uh, to uh, provide medical attention. John Adams, later became our second president, actually defended the uh, uh, British who fired because uh, he argued successfully in court that they were provoked. But in any event, uh, Dr. Warren uh, could see that as a uh, harbinger of things to come, and he was increasingly concerned about the meddling of the British Parliament in colonial affairs, the arrogance of King George III, and that led him to uh, 
be involved in every skirmish and battle between Lexington and Concord, uh, which were in April of 1775, until um, his death at Bunker Hill two months later. Wow, just an amazing story. And indeed, uh, I read the book called The Indispensables. I've forgotten the, uh, the author's name now, but irrespective, it talks about the Battle of Bunker Hill. And, you know, the, the fighting at that time, it was basically uh, marching forward with bayonets, shooting. I think this is, this is at the... Wasn't it on Bunker Hill when they said, don't fire until you see the whites of their eyes? Something like that. Yes, that was General Prescott. Yeah, and uh, the fighting, it was just unbelievable how these people would, uh, I mean, they'd just go out there and take the, uh, uh, give up their lives for their country, and that's uh, exactly what uh, Dr. Warren did. Yes, absolutely. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, uh, he is recorded in one of the biographies of him uh, as telling Elbridge Jerry, uh, a notable Massachusetts politician, on the eve of the Battle of Bunker Hill, when Jerry urged uh, extreme caution and uh, urged Warren to not even participate, to stay away, uh, Warren said, I am aware of the danger, but I should die with shame if I were to remain at home in safety while my friends and fellow citizens are shedding their blood and hazarding their lives in the cause. Uh, by that point, he'd become a general in the Continental Army, and it was in that capacity that, that uh, he led men at Bunker Hill, uh, took a bullet to the head, and unfortunately uh, died instantly. Yeah, what a story indeed. Uh, again, you can find this on fee.org, F-E-E.org, Dr. Joseph Warren, the founding father who fought for liberty at Bunker Hill and paid with his life. Uh, terrific. Uh, again, fee.org is the website. Larry, always appreciate your commentary here in the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Bob. My pleasure, indeed. All right, uh, coming up, going to be visiting with uh, Doug Lewis. Doug Lewis is uh, a local uh, political activist and attorney here in town and uh, really focused on uh, the well-being of our public schools. I look forward to this conversation. We're going to do that and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harton Show here on the Bob Harton Broadcasting Network. Do you have questions about your retirement? Ameriprise Private Wealth Advisor Jason Nardella with Nardella Financial Group, a private wealth advisory practice of Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, can help. With the exclusive Confident Retirement Approach, You'll work together to develop a retirement roadmap to get you where you want to go. Call Nardella Financial Group today at 239-325-1041. That's 239-325-1041. Office is located at 9015 Stratistel Court, Suite 103, Naples, Florida. The confident retirement approach is not a guarantee of future financial results. Investment advisory products and services are made available through Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, a registered investment advisor. Blue Provence Restaurant is a favorite dining destination for many Neapolitans, including Linda and myself. Blue Provence, located in a historic building in the heart of Old Naples at Creighton Cove, offers a mix of French bistro cooking with bold, fresh Floridian flavors. Experience award-winning cuisine at Blue Provence and enjoy one of Florida's most extensive, eclectic, and fun wine cellars. Dining your choice of the popular Eden Bar, the intimate courtyard garden, or the beautiful Provencal Caribbean dining room. Enjoy a wonderful and memorable evening in a casual and relaxed atmosphere that includes a taste of Provencal hospitality. Blue Provence is open seven days a week, all year round. Visit blueprovencenaples.com for reservations, everyday specials, and coming events. That's blueprovencenaples.com or call 261-8239. That's 261-8239. Blue Provence French Restaurant in the heart of Old Naples. Welcome back to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability. Among other things, creating policies and programs to get able-bodied folks off of welfare and back to work. I proudly serve on the board, and I hope you'll check out the website, VFGA. 
org. We have with us Doug Lewis. He's a local attorney and a good one, but he's also a political activist and very concerned about uh, what's happening with our public education here in Cuyahoga County and our public schools. Doug, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, Bob, great to be with you this morning. Thank you so much. So uh, you'd mentioned that the uh, the uh, Collier County Republican Executive Committee has taken some pr- pretty good steps to protect and to uh, take a stand with regard to public education. First of all, tell us about the Collier County Republican Executive Committee. Sure. Uh, it's also known as the Collier County Republicans. Uh, it's the only Republican Executive Committee that's authorized by statute to operate in Collier County. Uh, we currently have over 240 me- members who are elected. Uh, to represent Republican voters in each of our precinct. I can tell you this committee is an America First committee, and we're committed to advancing the party platform locally. And this group represents the 126,000 plus Republican voters with respect to GOP matters in the county. Wow, very interesting. So do you have a website? Absolutely. Uh, If you go to uh, Florida GOP Collier, uh, you can uh, jump in. You can contribute. Get behind the effort. Come to our meetings. We meet every uh, first Monday at six o'clock at the VFW uh, facility there off 951. Wow! Every Monday uh, at uh, six o'clock. That's, that's so yep, interesting. Absolutely. So uh, we have school board elections coming up in August, and uh, just wondered, uh, you know, what what are what is the Republican uh, committee doing? Executive committee doing in in terms of our public our uh, school board elections? Sure. Yeah. So we have an election August 23rd. um, And uh, this is a little bit different in the sense that everybody can, uh, that there are candidates in D1, D3, D5, and and every voter is eligible to vote in all three districts. So Mm -hmm. of the five board members, uh, District 1, District 3, District 5 are up. And uh, we have an opportunity to not only uh, bring in a new board majority, but we also have an opportunity through that new board majority to hire a new superintendent, given the uh, announcement by uh, Superintendent uh, Dr. Patton that she's going to resign at the end of the next uh, school year. So this is a historic election. Uh, with respect to the CCRC, we've, um, I was asked to chair the endorsement committee uh, for school board. Um, it's, um, we had the opportunity to uh, vet all of the candidates. Um, um, I asked the committee members as we were going through the process to really look at a singular question, and that is of the candidates, in their opinion, who would best advance the party platform locally. I think as voters, we're looking for leadership. We're looking for candidates that say what they mean and mean what they say. Uh, I think we're just we're uh, we're distrustful to some extent, and we want to find those that actually believe in the party principles that put America first. So we we did that, um, and we have endorsed in both District 1, District 3, District 5. Uh, The committee endorsed, and by the way, the majority, the overwhelming majority of the Republicans in the CCRC uh, voted to endorse, um, and it was fairly historic. Uh, In District 1, uh, they voted to endorse Jerry Rutherford, uh, District 3, Kelly Lichter, and District 5 is Tim Mosher. So interesting. Well, so thank you for that. I wasn't aware that that had happened. And uh, uh, I, I just noticed conspicuously uh, uh, present is the fact that none of those are the incumbents. Correct. Yeah, correct. <laughs> yeah, they aren't. And so part of that, you know, part of the issue is is uh, getting the message to the voters. And uh, so as part of that, uh, Frank has asked, um, it formed an ad hoc committee and the purpose of the committee is to elect our uh, endorse candidates and to work with um, voter outreach. And so at the last meeting that we just had uh, for the month of July, the uh, committee approved an authorized uh, expenditure of funds. We're going to be going to to the Republican voters in Collier County to communicate to our voters who the only endorsed candidates are, uh, candidates that put America first. So that's going to be happening, which is exciting. Uh, recall in 2016, that didn't happen. And one of the things that I, I want to communicate, I think that we need to communicate as a community and discuss is that we, we constantly hear that these school board races are not partisan, you know, that they're nonpartisan. Right. And that we shouldn't politicize. And yet the left has been doing that for decades and they're fundraising. They're actively working to get their candidates elected. And they've been doing that, for example, here locally in 2016 there. I don't know if you recall, but there was a, a very far left pack called Preserve Our Public Schools. 
and they spent close to a quarter of a million dollars, $243,500 to be exact, uh, they, they raised and, and dropped into the 2016 election to elect uh, uh, Stephanie Lucarelli, Eric Carter, who the uh, Tiger, the teachers union, the PACs, the liberals, the Democrats got behind. So this has been happening, and this was a this wasn't a, a small amount of money. I mean, this was these broke state records, right? Um, and so we have an opportunity here in Collier to do something historic. We have an opportunity to uh, to you know work together, link arms as Republicans, uh, and I think that's really been the strategy of the left in Collier County. I think they understand divided we fall, and as a party, uh, we win we win Collier County. Yeah. We have opportunities to do some incredible things. We have the opportunity to protect parent, parents' rights, to eliminate indoctrination, to improve our instructional materials, to conduct audits, to stop wasteful spending, enhance school safety, and uh, you know, remove CRT and racism, promote civics. It's really exciting. And I think we have a unique opportunity in Collier County. Voters are awake, they're alert, they're attentive, attentive to what's happening and i think we have a really unique opportunity in collier county to to reimagine education i think so doug now now one concern of course is that the uh, the current uh, superintendent of schools has resigned this creates a window for the current school board to uh, appoint or to hire a new superintendent well the without the input of our uh, newly elected uh, school board members what are your thoughts Are you, are you there, Doug? Yeah, I'm right here. Did you hear my question? I'm sorry, I, I lost. Okay, the, my question is, uh, the, the uh, school board uh, has the opportunity to hire a new school superintendent without the input of a new uh, school board members. What are your thoughts? Yeah, that's that that that's a, a great question. Um, the Collier County Republican Executive Committee uh, unanimously adopted a resolution we're going to be taking that to the incumbents, um, but the the essence of the resolution is that you know we have a very important election, um, and that we 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 believe that the voters through their elected representative through the new board should have the the voice in that decision for the superintendent. You know the school board really gets three hires: they hire the superintendent, they hire the uh, they can hire an attorney, which they haven't you know done, and they can hire an auditor, an accountant. Which they have not done either, um, but the but we believe as a as a party, I think the community, I think is united in this idea that you know through the election process, because the, again the uh, superintendent is selected by the board, but the board is an elected position, and so we we strongly believe that the new board should be the party that um, begins the process and completes the process that they have the ultimate decision through the through the ballot box and through the election process, who our new superintendent will be for the schools. Absolutely. Well, Doug, you, your organization is doing great work. I've got, again, the Collier County Republican Committee. Uh, again, for our listeners who may want to participate, get active with regard to the school board, it sounds like this is a good venue and a good opportunity to do so. Again, what's the website? Sure. Uh, Florida.gop forward slash Collier. Okay, and uh, what's the best way to contact you or to get uh, get more information? Sure, you can reach out to the chairman, Frank Schweikern, and his uh, email is chairman at GOP or callyourgop.org. So chairman at callyourgop.org, phone number 239-248-0731. Very good. Hey, Doug, really appreciate this information. Very helpful, too. Uh, again, there's... We spend over a billion dollars, I think $1.2 billion on our schools here in Collier County. It's the highest tax amount that we pay, and yet there's been so much indifference up to this point about what happens. And this, I think, is going to be really helpful in terms of getting uh, the schools aligned with and the school board aligned with the politics here in uh, Collier County. So I really appreciate you coming yeah. on the show. Thank you so much for yeah, joining Yeah, fully us. concur. Yeah, it's $1.286 billion and it's about 45% of our ad valorem share. Wow. And you're right, about 41% are not at reading to grade level and 40% aren't performing math at grade level. So we've got work to do, and it's, it's for our kids. We do indeed. Thank you so much for Doug. Well, that's a wrap here on today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, I certainly did and learned a lot. Uh, I encourage you to, uh, to listen in tomorrow. We're going to visit with our state senator, Kathleen Pasadomo. We'll find out what's new with Boo Mortensen up in Madison, Wisconsin. Seton Motley is the founder and president of Less Government. I look forward to discussion with my wife, Linda, about what's happening around the world and here on the Paradise Coast. 
I always appreciate your comments on the show. You can send me an email at bobharden at hotmail.com. Bobharden at hotmail.com. And if you enjoyed the show, uh, tell your friends about it and uh, give them the website or the uh, podcast location that you're listening. Uh, our appreci- our uh, advertisers would really appreciate it, and so would I. I hope you make it a great day on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are. Namaste. so much for listening to the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. For more information and audio files of previous shows, visit www.bobharden.com.